people have compared this to slavery as an issue. This is the biggest story in the world. Climate change. Last week on the podcast, The Guardian was at a fork in the road. People power or political action? Which would keep global temperatures from rising to a catastrophic level? World leaders in the run-up to Paris, they should feel the pressure. They should feel the pressure of their, their voters. Allen had to make a decision about whether to back a divestment campaign or push for influence at the Paris Climate Change Summit. But for Allen, actually, it doesn't need to be one or the other. Both could be true. Because they are intrinsically linked. And on the ground, they've started running. It's a campaign. People power for political change. Alan again draws together his team to pick a target. A smaller group this time in his office, overlooking the canal. OK, I'll kick off. So it, it's all been, um, as you know, a bit sort of ad hoc at the moment as we've tried to draw together various strands. But, um... When thinking about who they should go for, Alan had gone back to that conversation he'd had last year with climate campaigner Bill McKibben, who'd said... You'd simply go for the bad people, the shells of, of this world. It's probably going to be water off a duck's back because they're used to being treated like that. So... Don't go for the really bad guys, you go for the liberals. As they should be the ones setting the example. Some of the great universities have already, even early on, begun to divest. The World Council of Churches and other denominations likewise. Spokesman for the Rockefeller family, the first family of fossil fuel, the original oil fortune. They announced that their philanthropies were selling all their holdings in coal and oil and gas because they thought it was both immoral and unwise to keep holding them. They said that if John D. Rockefeller were alive at the moment, what he'd be pursuing was renewable energy because he understood that it was the future. So, suggestions? Um, one of our number who shall remain nameless said, what about the Wellcome Trust? They've got lots of money. Wellcome is the second largest charitable foundation in the world. It was co-founder of the Human Genome Project, and they're dedicated to medical research. It's supposed to be about science. It's about supposed to be making the world a better place. They're usually the good guys. Um, and they said that they won't. Divest. And suddenly you thought, well, there's a campaign, um, because you've got Nobel laureates who care about this thing passionately are very knowledgeable who you could mobilise. And it sort of gives a focus, it sort of dramatises it a bit. So um, is welcome a good uh, subject to concentrate on? They said to me last week, and they said, uh, no, we won't. They said, how much of your portfolio is fossil fuels? Don't know, can't tell you. Uh, Trust believes that climate change is one of the greatest contemporary issues facing health which is why we've made the understanding of the impact of environmental health one of our five key research channels. The only thing you won't invest in, well, trust won't invest in. The only thing Wellcome won't invest in is tobacco companies. So, so a powerful argument against that would be carbon is much worse for you than tobacco. 
So this is completely, that's completely a rational thing for a scientific trust to... For uh, to, 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 one thing I would add, to focus exclusively on Welcome, the, the downside is it's not really a global brand. I mean, they, they act globally, they fund things all over the world, but it probably wouldn't get people excited in America. So, I mean, one argument might be to sort of say, well, we, we have two or three targets. We have Welcome, we have Cambridge University, we have, I don't know, I mean, I take your point about what Bill's doing in targeting the Liberals who'll do something, but it... But the, the, isn't the nice thing about Welcome is that they, they are the scientific yeah. grant-making yeah. body. Yeah. That, that bit of it and, and they have said no. So, you, no. so, so to that extent, they put themselves in the frame and it's they of all people are not going to make this move. And if, conversely, if you could make them make a move, well, it ought to start with a Welcome Fund because how can 97% of scientists lecture the rest of us and yet allow their main grant-giving grant charity not put their money where their mouth is. Adam Vaughan has two other suggestions. Church of England is the other obvious one because, again, you've got the people you can yeah. lobby um, and um, then the other one is the MP's pension fund. Which the Church of England haven't, haven't said they won't, have they? They haven't said they won't, it's just they're clearly leaning And what about the MPs? MPs, he, the guy, I spoke to the guy on the board for the story at the time and he said, <laughs> he said he's a Scottish Labour MP and he said, frankly, I don't know what she's talking about. I mean, the only thing of the MPs is, you know, all those MPs are receiving pensions from no. that fund voted for the climate yeah, change no, Yeah, MPs, MPs' pensions aren't that like. We don't even know how much of it is fossil fuels, they couldn't tell me, so we could find that out for starters. And then you just survey all the MPs and say, do they agree that it should be? And that's the story in itself. But you've got, then you've got science, politics and religion. Um, so I'm, I'm taking the mood of the meeting is, yes, we could go for welcome. Um, it'd be quite nice to, to start thinking what that would begin to look like. So. What, what would be the elements of that campaign? We need to find out who the directors are, where they're invested, what discussions they've had. Do they publish the minutes of their meetings? Great, thank you very much, Steve. Two floors up, the special project room has finally been vacated by the HSBC tax scandal team. The pizza boxes are cleared, the bowl of granola is on the table. The climate team are here and Alan has appointed Captain James Randerson to run the ship. He's an experienced news editor, but running a campaign... This is something that I don't have a great deal of experience of before. So trying to understand, you know, which other organisations we should partner with who can help us, and when you're creating content, not making it too confusing. It has to be very focused, and really you have to tell people exactly what you want them to do, which is come and sign up here. You don't want to give them all sorts of options. So there's trivial things like that to understand. I mean, on one level they're trivial, but they're, they're kind of important, well, very important. One person at The Guardian who does have experience in campaigning is Amanda Mickle in the US office. James calls her up to pick her brains. It might be a good idea to have a target in the US. And then there's all those other suggestions from Alan's meeting. The MP's pension fund, the Church of England. I think that having multiple targets makes this more complex. You know, it's like in crafting any story or narrative, you're adding more characters. <laughs> and it can make it more difficult to follow. So it is a really important decision because it means that, you know, there will be updates about all these different institutions. And that can be, you know, a lot for people to take in. It can be a lot to follow. 
which is why I personally prefer a small number because I think it makes the narrative much more manageable. Also, I feel pretty strongly that we're overlooking a major opportunity to have influence on journalism itself, and we should really think about that as its own sort of target. So to say, what are the implications of Rusbridger's decision for The Guardian, but also why is he choosing to do this? What arguments is he making about journalism itself? Well, that you know, because that that comes back to the the question of uh, having people who have perhaps been um, impacted by climate change as a, as a face of the campaign. But it sounds like, from what you're saying, that there are a lot of advantages to Alan being the focus. I think this is this is Alan's, you know, he sees this as his legacy, and he wants to do it for The Guardian on behalf of The Guardian, using The Guardian's platform, and he's choosing to do so. I, I think, as the editor-in-chief, He's making a real argument for the role, how he sees the Guardian's role in the world. And I think we should, and he should, explicitly address that. Fewer targets and a 61-year-old bespeckled pinup for the campaign. James puts this to the editor. So the big question is the U.S. target. Yeah. And we've checked out quite a few potential organizations, and I am pretty convinced that the best one to go for is the Gates Foundation. The reason being, now, I mean, obviously we have a relationship with them. They fund the Guardian's global development website. The reason being that they are the largest private foundation in the world. They've got $43.5 billion in their endowment. The endowment's got about $1.1 billion in 40 of the top 200 Carmen reserve companies, so people like Exxon, Coal India, Chevron, Total, Rio Tinto, Shell. And they make statements in which they say investments should be in line with their values. Bill, in his statements, you know, says a lot about, about climate change and, the, and the, a lot about of what they fund is connected to climate change. The other alternatives that we looked at are things like the Ford Foundation, which is the second biggest in the US, or the Clinton Foundation. So I don't know, I mean, uh, I would imagine a campaign that had the spec for, we think this is one of the greatest organizations on the planet, has achieved brilliant things, doing X, Y, and Z, and we think it how should much, show how leadership. How much better they could be? Pardon? How much better how they much? could be if only they would do this, yeah. I, indeed, indeed. Um, so okay, I, well, I'm, I'm, yeah, I mean, the, the deal is they, they support our journalism on uh, development and the millennial development goals and so forth, so... Um, I mean, there's, there's nothing that says that we can't criticise them. We should criticise them if we feel so. Um, that's fine. Great. Well done, James. Next. We think that it would make sense for you... I mean, this is such a personal campaign about you that you, effectively the face of the campaign is you as opposed to, um, you know, having a farmer figure who is, you know, a person out there who is the face of the campaign. You're, you're wincing at that. Uh, well, I don't know if I want to be the face of the campaign. I mean, in the sense that I think it should be, the, it should be the, the Guardian and its readers. I mean, I, you know, of course I'm going to be doing some of the journalism and I'm the editor, that's fine, but I don't want to look like a sort of, you know, personal hobby horse. Getting, a, getting an email in your inbox from Alan Rusbridger is, like, is going to get a lot more click-throughs, basically, than getting an email in your box from The Guardian, which feels like just a, could be another corporate email. OK, um, all right. If you say so. A decision. 
two targets, the Wellcome Trust and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Feeling confident, Alan? Well, the classic rules of a newspaper campaign is only, only start campaigns, you know, you, you will win. So in that sense, this is the most terrible campaign. But on the other hand, the stakes are incredibly high. You know, this is something that if we don't manage to change behavior and shift governments, then it's not too bleak to say we're all doomed. And I can't think of a, you know, that's, that's about the most important campaign you could do. Time will tell and time is short. With four months left, Alan and James have started talking content. We've set up the basic reporting. So um, so James is putting together a list of the pieces, which I think are just the questions that anybody will ask about how this works, who who owns this stuff, where is it, uh, questions about um, fossil fuel subsidies, uh, explaining how carbon trading mechanisms work. So we we haven't really geared up the investigative bits of this yet, have we? Not, Not really, because... Nick Davis told me that he's basically unavailable for the time. Um, is Dave, David Lee a possibility? Well, David Lee claims to have retired again. And I've told him he can't, but his, his opening position is he's retired. One of the things I underestimated was that real life intervenes. Um, so I think I had this fantasy that I would come back in January and I would clear the decks and just do this. Um, and the attack on Charlie Hebdo happens, and then we had the HSBC taxing. So suddenly, this dream that you're going to come back and just do climate change is out the window. And anyway, when you meet with your colleagues, they've all got different ideas of what it's going to be. Well, I've asked Larry Elliott to answer what I think is the most fundamental question. How do we make this fossil fuel transition? Can we even make it? You know, do we need some kind of voluntary recession? Do we need an entirely different economic model? Um, Bill McKibben wants to go a bit earlier because he thinks there's going to be action in America. I think our team want to push it back a bit. You know, it's all very much in flux, really. So we're still feeling a sort of slight tension between the urge to go fast and go slow. As every day goes on, I realise how much bigger this whole thing is than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Should we let them in and do this bit and then come back to this bit? Okay. Creative director Alex Brewer enters the room with a large stack of front page prototypes. Oh, fabulous. Yeah, absolutely. I took from our last conversation that this shouldn't feel like a newspaper front page. This should feel something very, very different. I have some examples of things now. We haven't necessarily got all of these people yet, but um, some of them we have. And so the first one, and this is the idea that first potential is we could actually wrap all the way around the back of the newspaper. This first one is by Anthony Gormley. This is a existing piece that he's already done, but I have I've been in touch with him this week and he's, he'd be really keen to actually do something original for us, if we can get it done in time. 50 figures, black silhouettes, type across the top. All we have to do is not react as if this is a full-blown crisis. All we have to do is to keep on denying how frightened we actually are. Did these are naming clan quotes? Yes, this is this is taken from the first then, piece, and I quite like using a human form of that quote. In which we've been averting our eyes. That's very powerful. Well, that's one piece. This is another. So, where, where, sorry, where would that type sit? That, so that's the front page. So that would be the front page. Literally the front page. So, yeah. Is this <laughs> the, the, the font is called Why So Serious? 
My sis here. Yes. Because we're all about to be fucking destroyed. Yeah. 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 Pretty much. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Next one is by an artist called Cornelia Parker, which is, again, I thought was, as soon as I saw this, I thought that's, it's it's mundane, but actually really, really evocative of of what the challenge is. And it's it's a simple image of uh, an oil stain on a pavement. I really like that one. Well, it sort of gets it gets back to the sort of um, the psychology of all this, whether whether coffins make people wake up or whether coffins are too scary and switch people off. We need a psychoanalyst on the job. Yeah. But before you press print, guys, step back a second. There's a fundamental philosophical problem with this whole project that could be its undoing. You know, there are big questions about asking people to do something that we ourselves have not done. What Amanda is talking about is sorting out the Guardian's own pots of money, their investments. What will feel like hypocrisy. (laughs) We have about £600 million invested uh, at the moment, and uh, I don't think our our fund managers could say exactly how much was invested in fossil fuel. But it it is there. Uh, We haven't said that it shouldn't be, so um, we, we have got money invested. And so if we're going to be calling on people to divest, people are bound to ask, well, is that what The Guardian's going to do? This is where it gets complicated business-wise. The buck doesn't stop with Alan. The finances of The Guardian are looked after by The Guardian Media Group, or GMG, run by Andrew Miller. They have a savings fund of £600 million, which is there to secure the future of The Guardian. But The Guardian newspaper and GMG are separate organizations. There's no direct link that says the Guardian Media Group has to behave in accordance with the Guardian's policies. Because in a sense, the freedom works both ways. If we're going to be free of influence from the commercial side, then you could say, well, the commercial side should be free from influence from the editorial side. But I think I will try over coming weeks to persuade the Guardian Media Group that they should divest. And it will be an interesting litmus test of our powers of persuasion if we can persuade them. And here's Alan's first chance to pitch to the powers that be. So we're going into the meeting of the Scott Trust. They own GMG. It's the only shareholder. Um, It's been a trust since 1936. And it's the body that exists to preserve The Guardian and its editorial um, independence, but also to make sure that it's got a sort of long-term future financially uh, in perpetuity, i.e. forever. And there's a group of my colleagues in there who um, I'm about to ask about climate change and the fact that at the moment the Guardian Media Group doesn't have a policy about the kind of things that we're going to be writing about editorially. I, they, they, they do invest in fossil fuel companies and, and I don't think they've ever been challenged to think about this before. So, take a deep breath, Alan. All your life skills are needed here. One UN... So I just, I just wanted, I just wanted to bring you up to date with something that we are doing, which, um, I mean, norm- normally we keep editorial away from uh, anything that concerns the GMG or the Scott Trust, in the sense that we, n- nobody should feel bound by what we're doing editorially. But I think this campaign is bound to immediately provoke questions about our own attitude to our investment. 
So what we are going to be doing is launching a big campaign around fossil fuels and uh, divestment. And if you look at the, the this A3 sheet, and you look at the three numbers on the Alan list, has done his homework. Yes, the Guardian's 600 million pounds is partially invested in fossil fuels. If they do want to divest, it's impossible to know what the return would be. Well, I think your idea that the Guardian should open the argument is a really good one. I think for us, for the Trust, it's not our job to tell you what to put in the paper, but the questions for us are ethical one, the effect on the income of the company, perpetuity, uh, and, and maybe this is not right, but maybe is there a distinction between what we do ourselves and um, how we go about targeting other people? Right, who wants to say anything? I mean, this is, this is a helpful kind of guy, general guy, but how empirical is it possible to be? I mean, could we, can we, can we sit down and, and crunch the numbers and say, and say for, for, for this particular strategy, the impact would be X, or is it just, is that not And it possible? depends how successful the campaign might be, doesn't it? If, just, well, we, we do, if you genuinely get momentum behind these things, then... Yeah, but, but I think the great thing is, as I, said, I don't think, that, if anything, there's a debate that we ought to have between the board, the GMG board and the trust, and the trust as shareholder can ask us to do certain things, and if the, what we'll have to do as a board is come back and say what the impact is on the return rates and funding. Interesting question. Whose decision is this? It is conceivable that you would, the, you would take an editorial line after debate, and Andrew and the board, the commercial board, would say, um, we decline to do that, uh, with the business. It would be very embarrassing, very difficult, and I do hope that we don't end up with that possibility, but it's a possibility. I mean, what, what we're doing here is, is by setting up a campaign, a campaign around divestment, we're going beyond reporting, uh, and we're doing that because it strikes me that we're in this sort of extraordinary disjunction between an issue that threatens the future of the human species. So it is by some way the biggest news story of our lives and yet nobody's reporting it. And so I'm just trying to find something that will dramatise this. It's not going to be done through reporting. There's yeah. also a financial risk potentially. If there is. Taking a sort of yes. campaigning approach and sacrificing returns that could be you know, vital for funding the future of the organisation. I do think there is an issue if you never can resolve it. Because I think there is a really questionable weakness in an editorial position which we cannot ourselves sustain. If we are telling other businesses to do something that we cannot ourselves do, then there's something wrong with either a business or our attitude, it seems to me. Um, editorially, um, the editor-in-chief wants to do this. And, you know, it seems that there has to be some kind of integrity in the and that the Guardian Media Group, you know, at the very least, you know, is investigating, if not actually doing, um, the things that we're campaigning for editorially. And I think it's a, otherwise we are, we do look, <laughs> I mean, it's, for someone, it's for someone else to behave sustainably, but not us, you know. I think that's pretty tricky. <laughs> Given how difficult this is for us, can we just be a little bit careful about how, how violently we go for other people before we've set our own house in order. I mean, you know, tackling ethically difficult questions is hard. It's much easier to be bad than good. Um, and, you know, that, I'm not 
I don't mind the Guardian finally, often finding itself unable to live by its own lights completely. But before we actually put heavy boots into other people, can we just, you know, make sure that we're kind of ahead of other people's efforts? We understand it. It's a fantastic issue. I think we're going about it the right way. We need to be just skillful at moving together if we possibly can. Um, um, and I'll thank you for raising that. I think it's just a brilliant thing to launch upon into the most exciting, important issue. So that was a sort of slightly strange conversation because they almost veered into talking about editorial content, which was not what I was expecting them to do. Um, but you could see them when, when I mentioned we might start criticising the Welcome Trust. You could see them saying, "Well, hold on a minute, isn't that a case of?" glass houses um, you know, why are we throwing stones at them when we haven't sorted out what we're going to do and that sort of raises an interesting question about what journalism is you know, it, if you're working for the Guardian do you have to sort of think oh well are we morally pure ourselves before we uh, write about this I think this is where it's a really important argument to be made by Russ Bridger about why he wants to pursue this path and wants to see if the Guardian can do it and um, it will be a bit, I mean, I, I do think there needs to be a group decision and discussion about what happens if the Guardian's not able to divest, but maybe the MPs do. <laughs> How much effort are we putting into divesting ourselves? And also, do you think doing it publicly is the way to make the case within the Guardian? It's, it'd be one thing if the Guardian had divested and it was asking other institutions to. Um, and but that's not where we are now. So I hate to leave on that note because I know that's probably one of the thorniest ones. <laughs> but Alan, will you go ahead with this if the Guardian doesn't divest? Well, uh, no, I think we have to. I think I think if the board don't agree, I will ignore the board and run the campaign anyway. Good luck. The Biggest Story in the World is narrated by me, Alex Krotoski. It's produced by Alana Chance, Lindsay Poulton, Matt Hill, and Lucy Greenwell. Head of audio is Jason Phipps, and the executive producer is Francesca Panetta. Subscribe 